Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Mighty Blaze podcast. I'm your host, Tricia Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze connects readers and writers in the age of COVID and beyond, and we've been so honored to conduct interviews with hundreds of incredible authors in the past year, from bestsellers to debuts and everyone in between. This week's guest shook up the literary landscape back in 2013, when she gave a whole new meaning to the phrase, take a hike. I'm talking, of course, about Cheryl Strayed, whose best-selling memoir, Wild, chronicled her life-altering journey along the Pacific Crest Trail. I was one of the millions who was incredibly moved by her story, so much so that I dragged my entire family off of our planned route on an Oregon vacation just so that I could see the Bridge of the Gods featured at the end of the book. And yes, it was worth it. Ms. Strade, of course, didn't stop there. She went on to become a podcasting superstar with Sugar Calling and Dear Sugars. And she's also released the books Tiny Beautiful Things, Brave Enough, and the novel Torch. Speaking of torches, I'm now thrilled to pass the blaze torch to our very own Jenna Blum in conversation with the one, the only, Cheryl Strayed. Okay, we are live. My God, so excited. I am Jenna Blum. I am the co-founder of A Mighty Blaze, and you all know who I am here with today. I am here with Cheryl Strayed. The Cheryl Here she is. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> her mic and her headphones. And I cut my mic and my headphones. Hi, Jenna, and hi, everyone who's out there in yeah. internet land. I'm so glad to be here with you. We are so excited to have you here, Cheryl. I don't know if you remember this, but I love to start these interviews striking down the worst thing I could say about myself on camera. And my <laughs> confession is that um, at the AWP, maybe four or five years ago, I trapped you alone in an elevator. I was like, oh my God, I'm in an elevator with Cheryl Strayed. And I fangirled at you like this. And I was like, are you Cheryl Strayed? <laughs> and you said, I am Cheryl Strayed. And I was like, oh my God, you are my favorite ever. And your book changed my life and your book changed my life. You were so Aww. great to spin the doors open and you were like, well, bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jenna. So nice. Thank you for that. That is so kind of you. Well, I I'm sure if, you know, did you tell me who you were then? Because no. I've been, I, I know who you are. I've been your fan for many years too. Didn't well, our first novels come out around the same time? That is possible. When did Torch come out? Torch is like, you know, I carry Torch, like literally around with me for years, like a torch. You, oh, that's so sweet. Your, yours is the Storm Chasers, right? That's one. My first one is Those Who Save Us, which I have in German behind me for some weird reason. And that was 2004. Yeah, that's, that's why I thought that they, because yours came out right around. The, so my torch came out in February of 2005. So oh. I, I remember you from right around then. Oh. That's, I read your book way back then. And so I was your fan too, Jenna. Oh my gosh. The way back days. Really? I may be on the elevator. I didn't know who you were. I didn't see your name, your badge, yeah, you know. I, but... very, I have like writer in the headlights thing. I've done this to several people. I do it to Ann Patchett. Every time I see her, I'm like, hi, my name is. Ugh. <laughs> I did that to George Saunders once on an elevator where we were in an elevator at a conference and we were going downstairs. And I was like, he looks like a writer. I should introduce myself. And then I froze because I'm like, oh, it's George Saunders. So whenever I meet right. somebody, I really 
admire so much his work has meant, you know, a really influential amount to me. I suddenly become mute, which now obviously not a thing. But I mean, <laughs> since you're my fan now, we can end this interview right now. I got what I came for. <laughs> well, I'm always flattered to, to meet people on elevators who, who are nice to me and tell me sweet things about my book. So thank you. You're welcome. It must be a work casualty. It's actually a question I wanted to ask you, but I just remembered that I'm so busy making heart eyes at you that I forgot to read your bio. So just in case- Oh, here we go. <laughs> get ready, buckle up, here comes you. Um, just in case anybody out there does not know who you're dealing with today, I will tell you. Here it comes, Cheryl Strayed. There she is looking just like her author photo, which actually like never happens. Um, you have to put your hand under your chin so you're like- I know, I gotta do, I, I don't know, yeah. I gotta look, kind of look, in yeah, that way. We, need, yeah. we need beards so we can be like, yes, you know. Yes. Okay. Cheryl Strayed is the author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, Wild, the New York Times bestsellers, Teeny Beautiful Things, and Brave Enough, and the novel Porch. Wild was chosen by Oprah Winfrey as her first selection for Oprah's Book Club 2.0. Obviously, we have to talk about this. Strayed's books have been translated into nearly 40 languages around the world and have been adopted for stage and screen. The Oscar-nominated movie adaptation of Wild stars Reese Witherspoon as Cheryl, it you, Reese, um, and Laura Dern as Cheryl's mother, Bobby. Tiny Beautiful Things was adapted for the stage by Nia Vardalos, who also starred in the role of you slash sugar. The play was directed by Thomas Kale and debuted at the Public Theater in New York City. Strayed is also the host of the New York Times hit podcast, Sugar Calling, and also Dear Sugars, which she co-hosted with Steve Almond. Ooh, ooh, I love the almonds. I love both almonds. So. Oh, I love them too. I miss, I miss making the podcast with Steve, um, mostly because I, you know, it meant I got to see him a few times a year. Yeah. Oh, right. I want to ask yeah. you about that. They're actually in my apartment in Boston today writing as like a husband and wife escaping from the Oh, place. are they? Are they? <laughs> yes. They're like, what should I ask Cheryl? Should they be scared? They were like, no, she's so great. You Please tell them I said hi and send my love. I'm glad to hear that they're holed up writing there. They're like, okay, and there's a free apartment. We're going to go write. Um, and yeah. Steve is a great political writer, y'all, and also very funny. So you should all check out Steve Almond. Um, back to you. Your essays have been published in the Best American. And Erin Almond is also a great writer. Erin's oh a gosh. novelist and amazing. Oh. Everyone should go get her, her new book. Okay, I'm really deeply, deeply, deeply ashamed right now because Erin is my friend for 20 years, and I <laughs> pride myself on supporting women. And I'm like, oops, Erin. I hope she never watches this. Erin's first book, Witches Dance, just came out last October. Yeah. Um, it's fantastic. It's about Paganini and a man who thinks he's Paganini and it's very passionate and there's yeah, music. Aaron's amazing. Yeah. A lot of illicitness in it too. So thank you. Um, yeah, no, right. don't worry. Right, I'm just going to say all the, all the amazing things. We're done. We're done. Here We're today. done. We're done. Yeah. I mean, the bio, go, go to my website and read my bio. Yeah. She's amazing. <laughs> Obviously we all know Cheryl is amazing. I'm going to put the bio away now so we can actually talk to Cheryl, um, but you have written all the memoirs, all the essays, all the fiction, all the movies, all the plays. Um, I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today. I'm basically, obviously, like a big puppy. I'm so excited. I'm like, oh, you're so sweet. Thank yeah. you. I just call him as I see him, girl. So one of the questions I wanted to ask, and start with something so easy, is um, about Wild, and I think it sort of speaks to my fangirl moment in the elevator when I was mm -hmm. struck dumb with awe. Um, and not even able to say I'm also a writer, 
is that your books are so influential to people. Like Torch, I remember reading on the banks of um, Lake Harriet in Minneapolis. And like married, you know, unhappily married 20 something reading this and thinking somebody else out there has my life, like understands Mm. grief, understands what it can do to a family, the way it blows a family apart. Um, And it was so gorgeously written. And I just had that moment when you finish reading a great book when you're just like, you just say thank you to it. Like you Mm. hug it and you say thank you. And then came wild and just at the risk of talking too much about me, I have read Wild probably six times at different stages of my life, different mm. chapters. And I feel like many classics, it has a sort of a different meaning presented depending what stage you're at in your mm. life. Mm-hmm. Um, the last time I read it, my mom was had breast cancer and she was fatally ill. And when I read it then, it was so helpful to me to have your voice in my ear um, at that time and feel like I was going through this very game-changing experience with a friend um, mm. who I had just never met except in an elevator. <laughs> and so I'm wondering, like, what is it like to be sort of like the lightning rod for every woman in the world who has lost a, a mom? Like, do you get in an elevator and people are just like, I lost my mom. Thank you so much for your book. Or you know, how is that experience for you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you. Uh, thank you for those kind, all those many, many kind words. And you know, I didn't know when I began writing that I would become that kind of figure to people that that my that my work would be read in a way that was uh, sort of helpful on an emotional standpoint that it was in some ways therapeutic or or uh, consoling. And yet, in retrospect, I look back and I think, well, how could I, you know, how could I have not known? Because I know that books have done that for me. That books have been my deepest companions, my deepest consolation at times, my deepest sort of like you just described sitting down like here at the banks of Lake Harriet and going, somebody else is out there like me. And, and you know, I think that, that uh, so many writers throughout time have made that observation that, that when we tell the truest uh, stories, and, and by that I don't necessarily mean nonfiction, when, when, whether the form be fiction or nonfiction or, you know, what, a mix of them, t- the two, is that telling the truth is about telling the truth about what it means to be human, what it means to love, what it means to lust, what it means to lose, what it means to fail and do the wrong thing and then make, make it right again and triumph and all of those things. Like, I always knew that that's what literature gave us. And so, when my books started, and, and you know, I think a lot of people obviously um, really came to know me through Wild, and um, and it, but that wasn't the beginning for me of people saying to me, "Your book saved my life." That that did begin with Torch, and it even began earlier than that with a couple of essays that were published um, that were in Best American Essays called "The Love of My Life" and "Heroin." So I started to get this feedback that was about, um, you know, sometimes about the literary content. Sometimes somebody would say like, oh, your sentences are beautiful. But a lot of times it was about my heart is broken too. And I read that essay or I read that novel and you made me feel seen. And so I started to realize like I was kind of, um, you know, that there was like a, a, a kind of there, like a self-help aspect to, to my, my work, um, even though I don't consider myself in the self-help world. And then of course, then with sugar and tiny beautiful things, I, you know, I was actually helping people. I was giving people advice, but using stories 
to do it. Yes, I always love being the dear sugars, even when the situations didn't pertain directly to my life, I would feel wiser for having read them and I would feel better equipped in case I, you know, suddenly accidentally had a child later <laughs> and hadn't planned to like, oh, right. do this and still write or, you know, any of the subjects that you gave voice to. Do you think this is so interesting? When you set out to write the first essays and when you set out to write Torch, I'm going to rewind even before Wild. Was that your aspiration as a writer to sort of cast that element of yourself out across the void and help people feel less alone? Or were you just trying to tell a good story? Like, what was the aspiration? The aspiration was to be a great writer. I had absolutely, you know, wild, you know, like real ambition. And I wanted to be a great writer. I wanted to be among the great writers. And so what I did is I apprenticed myself to the craft of writing for years and years and years um, and read everything and wrote a bunch of stuff and did, you know, in the end uh, had to really, I guess, in so many ways, just sort of humble myself before the universe and realize, you know, it wasn't really up to me if I would ever be considered one of the great writers, that, that, that the only thing I could do is write to the best of my abilities to be as, as rigorous as I could with the writer's craft and as courageous as I could with my own heart and my own mind and tell the truest truth. And so that's what I did. You know, I didn't, um, I, I think that there was a point along the way, and I think most writers learn this at some point along the way, is, is that you can't really, you can't control what happens to that work when it's out in the world. So I, I never thought, well, I wanna make an audience feel a certain way or think a certain thing of me. It was rather, I want to, for myself, accomplish, uh, accomplish this, this thing, make this sentence beautiful, make this uh, emotion raw and real and true. And so those were always, those were the goals I had. They were always about the writing and not about the reception. I have so many writer geek questions based on that answer. Do you feel, I have my own opinions about this and I'm sure all the viewers are thinking, yes, Cheryl, life goal checked. You are one of the great writers. Do you feel when you look <laughs> down and face that? I mean, I'm not kidding. Like the body of work that you have produced has helped a Thank lot of you. people and done so through words. And that's what writers aspire to do, to reach other people through words and to make the thing be the purest, truest thing it can Thank be. You. Um, you're welcome. But we've checked that life box off for you. When you sit down every day to work, or if you work every day, do you consider that you've achieved that goal? Like, can you say, okay, if an air conditioner fell on me tomorrow, I can you know, go into the great yonder thinking, I did what I set out to do with some of my work. It's interesting that you're asking this because um, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Maybe it's the, the coronavirus, um, you know, just this, I, I guess I've always thought a lot about my own mortality because my mom died when she was 45 and I'm 51. So like when she died, I, I just thought like, I can't, I won't live beyond 45. I had this thing that a lot of people who lose their moms young have. And, um, and then, you know, so I've, I think I probably think of my own mortality more than the average person. It's not like I'm, you know, like insane about it, but it's, it's present. And then, 
the coronavirus, you know, I have been afraid of, I've been afraid of catching it. Like a lot of people, um, this idea of, of becoming sick and dying has become kind of like much more in the forefront of our daily lives as we see that, that count every day, how many people died, so forth. And, um, you know, so, but one of the things, Jenna, that I have thought in this time is there are a lot of reasons I don't want to die. But one of them is I need to write at least two more books. <laughs> I need to write at least two more books. So I'm not, I'm not ready yet. You know, I, I don't feel like I've, you know, there's still so much more I have to say. Now, of course, once I write those two books, I'll probably want two more. <laughs> I'll probably be like, please universe, let me stay. But, but there isn't that sense. Like, I certainly don't have a sense of like, well, I spoke my piece. And I think that that's, um, you know, I think that that's always a good sign, you know, in an, in an art, any kind of artist that you, that you're always left feeling like I have more to say that there's that, that, you know, you write a book and you put everything in it and you give everything. And there is this period, at least for me, that I think like, okay, I'm done, I'm retiring. And then some time passes and you have these other ideas and you have these other stories that, you know, you need to tell. And so that's where I'm at right now is I have a novel and a memoir, both in my head. Some of it is on the page or on the computer screen, but I need to, I need to do those things. We're really glad to hear that. We don't want you to die either. We would like you to stay alive <laughs> for at least 300 years and write at least, I'm going to say at least 35 or 40 more books if you can do that. <laughs> oh yeah. That would be really helpful. We're good. I'd when just be happy with three or four more. <laughs> One of my, yeah, no, we, we need you to write more than that. I'm sorry, <laughs> we're going to have to budget more time for that. Okay. One okay. of my friends, um, Stephen Kiernan, who's a novelist, I know he's watching, he likes to quote another writer at me whose name I have forgotten on his deathbed when told, you know, he had like only X amount of days left to write. He thought, oh, I have X amount of pages left to live. You know, like that's how much time I have left as I can oh, interesting. X amount of pages in that amount of time. Um, and I, I do get that. I would be very indignant if I got handed a death sentence because I like to be alive for many reasons, like food. Um, yeah. <laughs> but also, I think like there are the things that only we can download through our unique channels that we want to give to other people. And so it's such a great privilege to spend a life doing that. Um, Do you get that feeling, though? I mean, sometimes I I have this almost like like this urgent feeling of these stories inside of me that have to get out. And of course it just, it seems so much easier when you're writing the story in your head than it is when you actually are writing. It's much slower going <laughs> to actually have to write it. But I, I sometimes feel that sense of like wanting to burst with, with story or, or sometimes it's even as small as like an image or a little anecdote that I just feel like I have to tell that. I have to tell that. Is that how your ideas come to you? most of the time that blow up into bigger things, into novels, into memoir? Yeah, I mean, I think that very often it's it's a kind of moment or a, 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 a simple, like very often a kind of emotion between two people or an exchange between two people that I think is a, this, it, it, it's something that is deeper than what we see on the surface. And, and that almost always is the thing that compels me. Um, in the case of the novel I'm working on, it's not so much that as it is a situation that I've always been fascinated by. Um, two women who love the same man 
and you know that that triad has always been cast as one where the women are in competition with each other and hate each other and um i've always been interested in the fact that they actually those women have more in, like they're they're more they have more in common than they do with the man you know i mean i always am interested in sort of taking a situation and turning it reversing its um its its kind of traditional meaning and exploring it so i'm doing that you know i i just ideas come from different places but very often it's just a seed and then of course it turns into a whole bunch of other things as you write so i'm so curious about this when i read other authors work I look, when I was a little girl, I had these puzzles that some of the pieces had um, recognizable shapes. So mm -hmm. you would have a puzzle that would have like a mushroom or an apple embedded in the nonsensical pieces. And when I read a novel, I always try and figure out what was the genesis, like what was the seed embedded in the rest of the novel? Are the seeds that are embedded or the ideas that you're talking about, are they things that people could easily point to, do you think? And, you know, say, oh, obviously that's where it came from. Or is it one of these, like a sidewise conversation that you have like tucked in somewhere. That yeah, it's, I mean, that's an interesting, I, I think about that too. And one of the questions I often ask my students when I'm teaching and also when I'm interviewing other writers, it's like, you know, what is, so in that book or that essay or that story, what is the sentence that, that means the most to you? Mm -hmm. And very often it is the kind of, it's like a taproot, um, sentence and and it doesn't necessarily mean that that sentence was there at the beginning and everything else grew from it but it is almost always a sentence that you wouldn't necessarily as an outsider be like oh that's you know that's what this whole thing is about but it's but it's meaningful to the writer because it in some ways is like the core like the core desire or the core wound or the core truth and you know almost always i have you know, in a book, it's usually not just one sentence, but it's, you know, if you asked me like, okay, go and uh, go through uh, wild and torch and tiny, beautiful things and find, you know, five sentences in each book that mean the most to you, I would have no trouble doing that. Um, because it's about to me, like those essential things that you, that you both start from and reach to as a writer. Are those the ones that the readers respond to usually the most and, and pluck out when they're saying their favorite lines? Well, you know, sometimes what's, what's interesting to me, I, I really am fascinated by uh, the sentences that the readers really pay attention to. And, and especially in a book, one of the, the great uh, privileges and pleasures of writing, having been the author of being the author of Wild is so many people have read it that a lot of people talk to you about it. Um, and so you get a lot of feedback and you can actually, it's kind of like, it's, you're almost like a scientist. You could like, there's like a sample size that's large enough that it's not just, um, individual preference. And I can tell you that the, 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 there are a few, the sentences that people talk to me about the most in wild are the sentences that scared me to write. And that I thought, oh, my first thought when I wrote it was I can't write that and I will take it out. I'll take that sentence out before the book is published. And of course, then I left it in and it, then it's the sentence that people are like, you know. So one example in Wild is um, uh, there's a scene where I talk about uh, my family and I spreading my mom's ashes. Mm -hmm. And we, we uh, took them, we scattered them into this flower 
bed that we made back on in the woods in Minnesota where uh, we where I grew up. And at the very end, I, I couldn't let go of all the ashes. I, I had these little last pieces, these burnt, like seemed like little bone shards in my hand. And I put them in, I put them to my mouth and swallowed them. And when I wrote that, it was like, it was like being jolted with electricity. You know, I got it from my computer and I was like, okay, I can't, I can't write that. That's too weird. And, and then I left it in and people all over the world have talked to me about that. This thing that I thought I was so savage and so weird. So many people all over the world have said, I did that too. Or I can't believe you wrote that. I did that too. I thought I was the only one. And then one day I got an email from somebody and it was titled too much. And um, <laughs> the woman said, I was loving your book, but I, you know, it's just disgusting that you swallowed those ashes and I stopped reading the book and I'm gonna, I'm not gonna read the rest because it's too much. And I, I thought it was so interesting because once I got over my kind of wounded feelings about it, like a mean email, I was like, she's right. Like, that's what's so, that's what our job is, right? Like it's a little too much and and sometimes it makes us throw the book across the room and say we hated the book. And other times it makes us, it touches a nerve on us and we see ourselves or we see humanity in a new light. We see the other in a new light. And so, yeah, I do think our job is to be a little too much sometimes. That is beautiful. I think life is too much sometimes. And if you're trying to chronicle life in an accurate way, which as a memoirist you are doing, then it, Again, the purpose of writing is to reach across the void of between yourself and another person, that sort of intangible void that is sometimes this big and then sometimes eternally big. Yeah. So you're not alone in your experiences. And I think the things that we're, we feel most ashamed about or most humiliated by or try to hide the most are actually the things we feel the most relieved about in, in finding them in books, whether it's fiction or in memoir. I would bet that the reader who wrote you that mean email actually had done the same thing or had wanted to and had just not sort of figured out how to square that with him or herself, you know, the too much thing. I I love getting, you know, reviews from people that are like, this book was disgusting. And I get (laughs) my favorite. It was like on Twitter when the actors were reading their bad reviews. I always wanted to do this for writers so we could read our worst reviews. My favorite review of all time of my first book, in a way, was a reader on Amazon who said, this was the most disgusting book. I have ever read. It had so much sex in it. Um, I, I left it in my hotel room and I wrote back to this person, which I rarely do on Amazon. And I said, I, I hope you at least put it in the recycle bin or gave it to the chambermaid so that, you know, <laughs> word could spread about this disgusting book. But I feel like the people who are sending you those emails are really saying you touched a nerve. Yeah. Touched a raw nerve. And that's what, you know, it's all about. Right. So it is. And I mean, I think what's so funny about it too, is, um, as you know, like all writing is like, well, you know, it's maybe, maybe it is too much. Like, I mean, when I write things, sometimes I'm like, is that too much? Okay. Is it not? I mean, like, I, I think that, that people, when they read a book, they think like the writer is just like, here it is. And I am right. And it's beautiful. Like there's so much stuff out there that I'm like, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe you're right. Like maybe I, uh, maybe I shouldn't have used fuck this many times. I should have, maybe I shouldn't have called people sweet pea as sugar. Maybe I, you know, like, I'm always like, well, maybe you're right. Like, you know, who knows? And this, this, what you see here on the page is where I was 
at that moment in time. And, you know, when I read, so, so after uh, Wild was published, uh, by that point, like there were more audiobooks and everything. And they asked me, I didn't get to do the audiobook for Wild, but they asked me to do the audiobook for Torch. And that was such an interesting experience because by then, I, you know, I hadn't read Torch for, I don't know, like seven years, you know, <laughs> and then there I am in the studio and I'm reading these sentences that I labored over that I just, you know, I, I almost had memorized the book by the time I finished writing it. And yet years later when I'm reading it, they're like, oh yeah, wow, these sentences. And, you know, at that, that woman in the studio would have revised some of those sentences, you know, would have revised some of those scenes. And that's what I love about being a writer. It's, it's always, you know, there's, there's like what those, what that work that we read by any, by any writer is, it's always like, that is who they were at a moment in time. That is the best they had to give at that moment. And then you go on and you do something else. I feel fairly forgiving of the mistakes I made in earlier work or ways that I might have redone it if I were to do it now, because I think I really did do the best I could. And I leave, I sweated this book out of my head for like three years. And yeah, it is a snapshot. It's like when I go back and reread books on my shelf, I can see all the notations I made in the margins, you know, when I was 10 years younger, like if yeah. I was wild, I have all of my, you know, notations in the, in the margins and, and Torch, same thing. And I think, oh, that's what I was thinking then when I was on the shores of Lake Harriet reading Torch then. And I see yeah. this like a pivot now it's a little different so we have like a million reader questions I didn't even get to ask all my own questions thanks readers but they're really good questions um one of them is actually about memoir I was explaining to somebody recently the difference between writing fiction and memoir which I am a total novice at I just finished my first memoir and gave it to my agent like two days ago for her birthday because she asked for that congrats <laughs> thank you I was like wow it's done I cried I always cry when you finish something yeah of course cry, yeah of course you know? for its incompleteness and also for the fact that you made something. Um, but I was like, okay, so writing fiction to me is about trying to hide my underwear all the time, right? So it's kind of like, <laughs> I want there to be a purpose and I'm trying to convey a message about something through this story, through these characters, I hope readers love and want to strangle and also love, but the actual intent has to be cloaked. Whereas in memoir, I felt like what you're talking about, the writing the thing that is too much, as a fiction writer, it was hard for me to sort of break that and be like, world, underpants, you know, but I feel like that is what being a memoirist is much more about than being a fiction writer. You have to be like, here's my underwear. It's weird looking. I wear the granny pants. It has a hole. Do yours have that too? Um, and, or, you know, no underwear or whatever, like whatever's, right? So do you have a preference for writing memoir and essay over fiction? And uh, one of the readers wanted to know, how do you sift through all the details of your life and decide which ones to include in the mm. retelling of your own experience. Right. Yeah. So first, I mean, I, I think I love both fiction and, mem and memoir and, and personal essay, you know, those, the, the nonfiction fiction, um, divide to me is, is not about craft. You know, you, you have to, you have to achieve the same thing on the page. Uh, you have to, uh, if in the case of fiction, you have to make people believe those characters are real. Like my favorite question I get when people ask me about Torch is, 
well, what happens, you know, what happens to Claire and Joshua next? And I'm like, nothing, you know, the book is over. <laughs> they don't exist. <laughs> you know, I love that. And, you know, but the same thing happens when you're writing about the self. Um, when, when you started reading wild, you didn't know Cheryl and it didn't really matter to you if Cheryl is an actual person living in the world or a fictional character that somebody made up. You have to, you have to create that sense of, of like, that, that really clear sense of this being a human with a real beating heart, you know? And so for me, the craft is the same, but, but the toolbox is different in terms of what can you draw on to achieve that effect. When I'm writing nonfiction, I'm having to really scour the actual, I'm having to scour what really happened, uh, what, what I'm able to, what am I, it, it may able to remember to the best of my abilities to tell with, with um, factual, actual, leg legitimate truth to say, this really happened and I'm gonna tell you a story about it. And I'm also in the course of telling you that story, gonna, gonna reach for that thing um, that all great literature reaches for is that sense of transcendence, that it's not just a story about me, it, you know, that it moves from my life to yours. And the way you do that is you find that universal thread, but you have to do that in fiction too. Like we've all read fictional characters that we ask, why do I care about him? Or why do I care about her? And the, the fiction writer has to answer that in, in the work, in the sentences, in the way that character is built. And of course, fiction, we always forget that actually fiction, most fiction, not all, but most fiction is actually a blend of memoir and imagination. And, you know, we, we, we draw upon our lives. It's not like, you know, um, you know, Philip Roth's characters have nothing in common with Philip Roth. They have a lot in common with him, right? And he, so he takes the self and says, here's a guy who's kind of like me and I'm gonna put him in this situation and see what happens. And I'm not gonna have allegiance to the actual. I'm gonna have allegiance to the mission of my story or what unfurls as I write. But so, you know, I just, you know, I think that, that in some ways that question, like, well, how am I gonna tell the story? Uh, what I'm always trying to answer is, what is going to be the most effective way? Mm -hmm. So in both Torch and Wild, we have a mother who dies young of cancer. And Torch is a story about a family. And it's a story about uh, a young woman who's got some things in common with me, but I'm not her, and a young man, and a 38-year-old man, and who I now consider young, but when I was writing it, you know, it was an older man. Um, and what happens to them when the person who's most essential to them dies. And so that, that was, you know, both inside my heart because that happened to me and my family and totally outside myself too. And so I was trying to tell a different kind of story. It wouldn't have been served by it just being from my perspective. By the time years later, I was writing wild. It was like, no, I'm going to tell the story of my grief. I'm going to tell the story about how I was wrecked and how I found my way back. And that was the most powerful way to tell that story. It would have been ridiculous if I had made that woman who hiked the Pacific Crest Trail a fictional character and then been like, oh yeah, she's, yeah, she's kind of based on me. You know, it just didn't, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, that positioning you're talking about, like showing your underwear, that's what I love about memoir and personal essay is the writer is standing right there and there is not a screen between you and the reader. You're standing there saying, this is actually me. Um, in fiction, there's a little screen. It's like, yeah, it's kind of me and kind of not, usually.
Yeah, no, I think that's true. Or at least you can say there is. Like in fiction, yeah. like, you know, all this stuff is out there, but at least I can say, oh, I just made that up. It's fiction and nobody really knows except for a handful of people what's true and what's not true. I think, do you, I am heartened by this idea. Um, and I actually found it less constraining than I thought to write memoir because I knew what had happened. So I didn't have to make shit up, which was like a great burden. To right, project. yeah. And you're, in, you're responsible for inventing the story. And I think for many writers, that is actually the hardest part is keeping that narrative arc spinning so the reader doesn't get bored. But there was also, after almost 50 years of you know plowing through all of this and writing professionally for almost 30 years, such a sense of relief in being able to put aside the mask and just say, this is how I was feeling. And you're talking about it being too much I definitely understand that it reverberates with me because I think it's a new thing for me to be able to put on the page exactly what I was doing or what I was feeling or open myself up this way. But I've been talking with my writer cohort and they've been saying like, this is the thing you should be writing about. This is, you know, the, the raw hangnail or the, uh, you know, emotional yeah. hangnail or the times that you were like the most wrecked. I do think that is what speaks across the void and makes things transcendent. Uh, one of our viewers who I know happens to be from Kansas, actually, um, she had written, you amaze me with wild losing our moms at such an early age is beyond mm. difficult. Thank you. And oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> she asks if there are authors you admire, you mentioned in the beginning of the conversation that you wanted to be one of the great authors and <laughs> sort of defined it sense as people who are able to capture that transcendence so that everybody can plug into the story. Who is that person for you or those people? Well, Alice Monroe is my absolute favorite author. I, I love her just eternally and so much. And every time you, you said earlier about rereading work and finding new things in it, every, every time I read Alice Monroe's stories, I am blown away and I see something new. So she was really important to me. A lot of, you know, a lot of writers were, and that's the thing is when I was in my twenties, I just immersed myself in, in literature. I, I read and I read, I mean, I still read, but, but back then I read in a, I mean, I'm still, and I'm still awake to what I'm reading. So don't get me wrong. But back then I was just so hungry to learn how to write. And like I said, apprentice myself to the craft that I was just like, how did they put that together? I loved Edna, Edna O'Brien was another really influential uh, person to be. Raymond Carver, who my son is named after Carver. Toni Morrison, amazing. I mean, I remember reading Beloved and just thinking like, okay. Oh, and also The Bluest. I read The Bluest Eye when I was like 19. It really is one of the, the books um, that changed my life. You know, I mean, I saw the world differently after reading that book. And, and also I saw what you can do on the page. Um, so there's so many, I, I mean, it's just almost too many. Mary Gateskill was, was powerful to me. I mean, just lots of people, lots of people. And I'm missing a lot of them here as we say, um, as I speak, because the, the, there's just too many to name. And I think that that's the key is like, if you're an aspiring writer or at the beginning of your writing life, especially is like, just go find, it's not just, it's not me saying Alice Monroe is great. It's you finding that writer who makes you feel like, wow, this is great. A lot of short story writers in your pantheon. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So part of that is about um, generational, uh, 
you know, back when I was becoming a writer, it wasn't like, I mean, there were memoirs for sure, but it wasn't, uh, you know, the way to, you know, it never occurred to me I was going to be a memoirist. I was a fiction writer. I was a prose writer. Most MFA departments back then only had, it was either fiction or poetry. You were in fiction or poetry. And uh, so I learned how to write by studying fiction. And, and I think that when I teach memoir, especially like at the graduate level, I always assign short stories um, alongside essays and memoirs because I do think that like, like I said earlier, like you have to do the same thing. So you have to develop the character just because the character happens to be you and your brother and your dad. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's, those people are no more real to your reader than, you know, somebody you made up. And so you have to do the same things. You have to learn how to be concise and dense and, and, and you've got to know pace and you've got to know how to, you know, sort of show the heart on the page. You know, all of that stuff is still there. So I, I teach and study prose um, not, not specific to the genre. Do you, um, ever get pushback from writing memoir essays from readers, from family members? Some of our viewers mm. are attempting to write memoir. I was very clever writing my memoir and that I was writing about a dog. And not only that, my dog who probably could have read if he were still alive, but is now not here. So I chose my subject wisely. I'm not going to get any pushback from him. Um, and all the other people in the book, I'm basically writing love letters to saying like, thank you for supporting me while I was caring for this super, super old dog. Um, <laughs> but, uh, do you ever get pushback from people you knew, you know, IRL and, or from readers saying like, oh, how can you describe your family this way? And how do you answer these charges? Yeah, I always say um, the, the, the most unfortunate, the, the, the most difficult thing about memoir is the unfortunate fact that other people exist um, <laughs> because it's the hard thing. It's the hardest part because of course in writing your story, you inevitably have to write about uh, the people in your life. And, you know, there's always the essential, the mother and the father, the people who, who uh, raised you or, or loved you or wounded you or left you or supported you or didn't um, all of those things have to be revealed. And they have to be revealed in a way that um, is both honest and also, I think, kind. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's, it, there's no one answer to that question. I think that it really depends on your situation. What I have found is, you know, a lot of times people won't want to write the truth about a relationship or about a person because that person is awful and abusive and harmful. Like in the case of, for example, I've written about my father being abusive. And I realized, you know, that I had to go really deep. Like, well, what are my intentions? Are my intentions revenge or anger or trying to embarrass him or make him pay? No, the answer is no to all of those things. My intention was to tell the truth about my life and my experience and to do it with as much love and compassion for him as possible. And so, you know, if I write from that standpoint, I honestly always feel like I have the right to tell that story. And, you know, sometimes people will, will still have that abusive person in their life. And, and what I say is like, well, you know, I think that if somebody, I mean, if, if somebody's trying to prevent you from telling the truth about your life, they're probably, um, 
not a, such a great person to have in your life. But of course you have to ask the question, you know, what's the price you're willing to pay? Are you willing to have your mother not speak to you for 10 years? Um, sometimes the answer is yes. And sometimes the answer is no. Uh, what is the price you're willing to pay to be silent? What is the price you're willing to pay to tell the truth? And get some clarity about that. Um, not before you write it, before you publish it. And that's one thing I want to say about this that I think is really important. I should have led with this actually, is that a lot of people freak out. They're like, I can't tell the truth about my mom or my sister or whatever, um, because you know they'll, they'll come get me and everyone will be mad at me. And, I'll, and I'm like, well, your computer, it does not have a direct connection to the pages of the New Yorker. You know, you've got to just let it, just write it. And then sometimes after you've written it, you realize, oh, well, the thing I wrote actually isn't so bad. It's not, it's actually pretty loving or it's actually less exposing of them as it is exposing of me. So first see what it is that you, that you have and write it, like write as if nobody will ever read it and then decide what goes out into the world and make, you know, and, and then you can make decisions. There are things that I have not written. I mean, a lot of people consider me like a really fearless writer and because I have written so honestly a lot about myself and a lot of people. And that's another thing I expose myself more than I expose anyone else. But times when I have been brave about other people, I really, um, you know, for every time I've done that, I've also decided, you know, I don't have a right to tell that story because it would hurt this person or it's, it's not my story to tell. So, you know, it's not about just like everything, you know, you get to have on the page. Like, I do think that you have to think deeply about the consequences. That is really great advice. And I think you just gave relief to a lot of people who are struggling with these issues, both in fiction and nonfiction. I always think the joke about this is on the writer that if you write fiction, people think you're always writing about yourself anyway. And if you write memoir, people say, oh, you just made that up. So people are just not going to be happy either way, you know, and then people will, when I was writing um, all the time, all the time, right. And I was yeah. even in fiction, I had decided not to write very much about my mom. And then my mom was always mad that she didn't appear in the fiction. Yeah. She was like, why did you have to kill the mother? <sighs> why couldn't the mother just be on a cruise? And I'm like, well, because I had to get her out of the way so I could write the book, you know, but um, I love it. Yeah. Advice to get clear about what your motives are and then what the potential consequences are. I had a, a situation with my second book like that, that I was in therapy for six years before I could even talk to the person who was involved, who was featured in that book um, about whether or not I could publish it or, or mm -hmm what the reaction would be when I did, because I was going to do it anyway, but right. there's a lot of weighing and sifting and writers do have that responsibility, I think, to tell the truth and then to also think why and how is this going to boomerang? So thank you for that. Do you, because you have so many channels into which you project your talent when you're writing, you know, novel, memoir, essays, what is your writing life like now? Do you commit to one channel and stay in it? Or is it sort of a kaleidoscope? Like you wake up and think, I don't feel like working on a novel today. I'm going to go over here and write an essay. Yeah, I, I, it, it depends on where what phase I'm at with things. You know, sometimes it'll be like a little bit of a kaleidoscope, like I'll work on this, I'll work on that. But then pretty, pretty definitely, like once I am working on something, I, I have to, it usually goes better if I stay focused on that. Um, and that might mean that that doesn't mean I never have more than one project going on right now. I do. I'm writing 
a novel. I've written, I've started both the novel and the memoir, but I've set them both aside because I'm writing a screenplay. But but whatever is on the front burner, I'm focusing on. So right now I'm writing a screenplay. I'll be done with it within the next couple of weeks. And then I'll, you know, spend a week, uh, you know, on the couch watching TV or something. And then I'll go back and I'll be in the novel. And then I'll stay in that. Because I do think that so much for me, it's it's like John Gardner says that writing fiction is like creating a vivid and continuous dream. And I think that that's really true that my, just my mind has to stay in that in that narrative or that story in those characters' minds um, for me to really see it all the way through. So yeah, I, I try to I try to focus, but, but I, you know, then along the way, I'll stop and write an essay or, you know, sometimes they're practical. Um, you know, I'll be like, somebody asked me to write something and I want to do it. So I'll take a break and do it. Yeah. I, I love the staying in the dream thing. Um, yeah. I'm working on a book. I read everything only if it's connected to the book. And then I watch things on TV that are connected to the book. And I have a soundtrack that I put on Spotify that is connected to the book. To oh, cool. Myself in the dream. So even when I'm not actively writing, I'm still in the sort of virtual reality game of living in that novel or that place. Do you have uh, tips like that or tricks like that that you use outside of the writing room to keep yourself in the dream? Mm. You know, I don't. I, wh one thing I can tell you is that writing is really hard for me. Thank God. It's so hard. It's Thanks. so hard. And for me, it, it it's not so much you know, cause once I'm in the dream, like I'm like in, and that's the good stuff for me, the hard part is, is believing that, I, that the, the dream still exists, you know, it, the, the time before you sink into the dream that like you can get there again. And every time I have to begin something new or I get stuck in, in, you know, the midst of a book or an essay or a story or whatever, like I have to say, Cheryl, you have to just, this is how it feels, it, you know, how it feels to write is to feel like you can't write that, that that's true for me um it feels many t a lot of the time miserable and difficult and like i'm a failure and like i can't do it again that like the, the imposter syndrome looms large in my mind like there's this part of me at my core that thinks okay i tricked you guys i tricked you all all those things that i managed to write up until now like somehow, I don't know how it happened. It just sort of happened outside of me and I can't do it again. And the ruse is up, you know? I mean, I really, so for me, the, the, the biggest part of writing is not staying in the dream, but trusting that I'll get there again. And once I'm there, then, then it's golden and I can write, but, but just staying, staying disciplined, staying, keeping faith with the practice. Um, and so the rituals I have about that are very practical. They're just about things like saying to myself, you can do this. It feels hard, but just write, just start. Just if you don't know where to begin, just start writing sentences. Um, and just getting in that habit of doing it rather than fretting about it is a, a really key thing for me. It's such a relief to hear a writer of your stature admit, I'm sorry, it's a bit schadenfreude, but it is such a relief to hear you admit like it's hard for you. And I say this, I always feel a bit chagrined because it's not like you're digging ditches or something. Like I had a lady living next to me in the house here in Minnesota who is caring for a whole house full of um, physically challenged men who all lived in the house. And she saw me slogging out in my writer pants one day to the mailbox and coming back in and being all crabby because I had to write a scene. 
and she said oh how's the writing going and I was just like it's fine and she's like oh I wish I could do it you do it it's so nice to just sit there and make up stories all day and all the writers I tell this story to get you know that the impossibility of that statement that it actually yeah. isn't that easy but at the same time every time I think about this I think what I do is not as hard as caring for a house of physically challenged adult men like every day, but it is, it is hard. I mean, it is, I think a daunting thing to do for me It is about being afraid that the fictional dream will evaporate while I'm doing some human thing, like going to the mailbox or sleeping yeah. or eating. And so when people talk to me, when I'm writing a book for like three years, I'm really crabby because I don't want people to interrupt me. I'm running lines in my head all the yeah. time. You know, but there are those awful, awful days where you sit down and everything you write is just shit. And you're just like, all right, this is part of the process. If you're getting to this phase, you're doing it right. But it never feels like better, you know? Yeah. So, and even some days you haven't written shit. It, and what I find is it's just, it feels like you did. <laughs> so like, you don't know if you did or not. And, and yeah, so it's, it's very, I mean, I also think for me, because I often feel this way too, like, this is so hard. And then I'm like shamed because I'm like, well, as I wrote, as I said, and, and write like a motherfucker, well, coal mining is harder. And what I've realized since I wrote that line is, well, you know, the thing is, is it, it's not a competition. And also it, it, there are ways in which writing is actually way harder than digging ditches. Um, it's, it's hard in a different way. Um, and it's hard in a very particular way that essentially asks us to confront our own anxieties and failures every day. Well, you're digging in yourself too. Yeah, yeah. You're digging for that honesty. Like you're digging out the coal of your emotional, yeah. of your emotional core. And I do think that that is often hard, but the days I'm, I'm talking about mostly are just cranky days where I feel like, because eh, eh, I didn't, you know, <laughs> didn't accurately convey what I wanted to convey. By the way, um, write like a motherfucker. I have the write like a motherfucker mug in my apartment in Boston and I use it only, I allow myself to use it only when I am actually writing, like not on Facebook, not writing nonfiction, not writing, like I have to be writing a new thing. When you sit down it. to write something new, I love my mug. I'm like, eh, you know, today I have my wild turkey capital of Minnesota Caledonia mug. In I love it. It ain't the same, but it's okay. When you sit down to write like motherfucker or otherwise, um, when you start something new, how do you start? I mean, everybody wants to know, like, how do you start? Do you start how do you start? Starting is the hardest part for me. Um, I hem and I haw and I just, I make excuses and I do other things and I get distracted. And then I finally say, you got to do this. Um, and I try to give myself positive self-talk. I try to say like, you want to do this. You, this is your dream. The dream, you know, we talk about trying to enter the, the writing dream, you know, but there's a different kind of dream. And that is the dream that I had as a child that I would get to do this and look at me, I get to do this, you know? So to remember that it's a pleasure and a privilege and to realize that, that there's a place that I get to that's unlike anything else in my life when it's going well. And the only way to get there is by, by doing the hard work. It's kind of like visiting the most wondrous, like waterfall deep in the forest, but, but to get to that waterfall, you have to walk over like rock slides and through mud pits and past, you know, trees. It's like Dor uh, Dorothy's journey of like the flying monkeys and the trees, trees that grab you. And you know, the price you pay is great, but the, the payoff is great too. And so I try to remember that and just push through. And almost always, once I get started before, you know, it, 
I feel like, oh, this is kind of fun. I forgot I was writing and, and, and not every day, you know, sometimes they're just like, oh, I put in my time. I'll be back tomorrow. Um, you know, well done. And other days it's lovely. And so I just try to remember that. Yeah. I take the long view. Right. And then you have like some of the days you have your monster on the monster backpack. Right? Exactly. I had totally. to pick monster in somehow, but I think, you know, walking up that rocky slope, it was reminding me of like the wild views of, do you write every day? And one of the readers asked like many moons ago, and this interview is going to be eight hours long soon. So I just wanted to give you a time check, but I will keep you here for about 10 hours talking to you. So about eight <laughs> hours ago, our reader asked, um, with so many demands on your time, and the more successful you are, the more those demands grow. How do you find the time to write? How has that affected your writing life? Oh, it's been so hard. I mean, because what happened to me too is I unexpectedly became a, a, a public figure in a way that, that, I, that I didn't anticipate. And by that, I mean, like, I do things like I'm an activist. I do lots of public speaking. I, I have a whole sort of accidental career as as a public speaker. Like I didn't, I didn't know that that would happen, but it has. And I enjoy, I enjoy speaking. I, and teaching, you know, like I teach workshops sometimes like, so, so since wild success, like all of these, um, there are all these kind of areas of my life that have even got, have gotten bigger. I was an activist for, you know, since way back, but that's gotten bigger. Um, and the public speaking, like I said, a whole new career. Um, and then also during this time, I also have two kids. My kids are teenagers now, they're 14 and 16, but this whole while, this whole time that I've been writing books and trying to concentrate <laughs> has been done during a time when I'm in, you know, real mothering, uh, some heavy, heavy, heavy lifting of motherhood, which also turns out to be a rather demanding gig. And so, you know, it's a lot. And I will say too, that, that part of it, you know, I, I love to be, I love to do other things. So I was really involved in the making of the movie. I was really involved in the making of the play. I, I'm a yes person. And what that did is it kept putting writing the next book on the back burner. Mm -hmm. And so I don't regret seeing, oh, the podcast too. I've had two hit podcasts. I've, you know, like, so I've done all these things. The next thing, I guess I'm gonna have to start a band or something, right? But I've done all these things, no regrets. They were all cool, fun things that, that taught me a lot. Um, but they did keep me from writing that next book. So that's what I'm doing. You know, I'm really now in some ways it's been really pretty interesting. This, this pandemic has forced me like suddenly public speaking career gone. Um, it's forced me to be home in my room working on the, the, the screenplay and then on the next book. So it's, it's kind of cool that like that, you know, it took, it took a, a terrible virus to make me you know, really get back. I mean, of course I've written a bunch of stuff, you know, but just to finish the next book, I've written short stories and essays, but to finish the next book has taken um, sustained attention that I haven't had until now. Right. So people think it takes a village, but really it takes a pandemic to like- It does. Down well, and that's, that's it. It's like with writing, it takes the opposite of a village. I mean, that's the thing is it's like, I've been like partying in the village for, you know, several years now and I'm like okay bye village I'm gonna go in my room now and write write the next book 
Yeah, no, same here. I, I do a lot of public speaking. I'm, I've been envying your mic the whole time. I'm like, she has a mic at home. How does one make that happen? <laughs> there was that one week at the beginning of COVID where I watched everything get canceled, 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 canceled. Yeah. And I thought, oh my God, what the fuck am I going to do now? I'm going to have to write another book. And then I decided, like, I accidentally started a company instead. So I don't have to write the next book. Ha ha. But <laughs> I will anyway. So, um, I may have to do a little lightning round of questions with you. I know I'm such a, I, I give long answers. I'm still sorry. Oh my sorry. God. No, I love it. Oh my God. <laughs> Please don't ever say that. I just think this also happened with, um, Anna Quinlan actually, like we were having like this fabulous, like meaty textured, lovely conversation about writing. And I was like, Oh, I forgot to ask you about the Pulitzer. Can you answer that quickly? Also, you know, movie also whatever. So, this is the thing about talking to like incredibly successful, talented writers is you have this lightning round where I'm like, can we talk in two minutes about Oprah, the movie and the play and also Reese and Laura. <laughs> and then, you know, we can like go back to our regular scheduled programming. Um, but you did drop the O-bomb in this conversation at one point and also just mentioned the movie, the wild movie, which so many of us love and that you were Thank involved you. with and also with the play of Tiny Beautiful Things. So um, in, in a lightning round, um, what was the Oprah call like? What was the movie experience like? And what was having your book turned into a play like? <laughs> the Oprah call was as every bit as exciting as you would guess. Uh, she called me up on my cell phone without warning. Nobody knew she was gonna do that. Um, she said, she read my book and we had a lovely chat and she said she wanted to restart her book club for it. And I was on my book tour. I was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in a, in a hotel and um, I was ecstatic and I met her about five days later. I went to her house and um, she interviewed me and we had a wonderful time and, and we became friends. You know, she's, she's become a friend of mine uh, really over the years and I, I love her. I'm so proud of her. Uh, about her old magazine cover of Brianna Taylor. And she's just, you know, it, it's extraordinary. So she's extraordinary and, and every bit as inspiring and intelligent and amazing um, as, as all the people who love her know. Um, what was the second question? The movie. I was really involved with the film. Reese and Laura have become dear, dear friends of mine. And I was you know, I just had a, an extraordinary experience um, really being part of that that filmmaking. And Nick Hornby wrote the script and I love him. I mean, it was just, all of it was good. And Reese and, and Laura and I have continued to work together. Actually, Reese's company, Hello Sunshine, um, has optioned Tiny Beautiful Things um, to make for TV. And we're, we're, we are working on that, hoping that will, you never know in film and television what goes through, but we'll see. And, um, what else? Oh, the play, Nia Vardalis and Tommy Kale um, adapt, you adapted it. So Nia adapted it and Tommy directed. Now Tommy was the director of Hamilton, of course, and he's just an amazing guy. And we, we had, that was a blast too. I was involved with that too. And the coolest thing for me has been to see the way that that, that book, you know, it's a book of letters uh, from people and from me, and you wouldn't necessarily think that could translate to the stage. It's not, it doesn't have like one story arc, you know, the way most plays uh, do. And what's been cool is, so it was a big hit in New York, but now all these different theater companies around the U.S. and uh, have, have produced it on their stages. And that was a beautiful thing. All last year, I saw several, several productions, including in here in my town of Portland, Oregon, Portland Center Stage made it. And it's just, it's, 
they everyone brings their own story to those words you know it was it it was me writing a letter to one person who wrote to me and the experience of the book was of course that that like so many people saw themselves in it and then the story of this the play is even it's 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 even kind of more interesting because you're in the room with people who are recognizing themselves in those characters on the stage so it's it's, it's pretty amazing um and and i want to say what was so hard i mean many hard things about that pandemic but all those plays that were to be you know produced all those productions of tiny beautiful things that were to be produced had to be canceled or postponed so that was kind of a heartbreak. I, I was going to go to DC and see it at the Kennedy Center, and I was so excited. I mean, you know, it just—it's—it's it's just been sad. I hope I—I'm I, so worried about our, um, you know, small and regional theaters, and we'll see how they survive this. But um, I, I hope that they—they they come back when we all can come back. Yes, and I know you're giving them so much support and giving bookstore support and giving activism support and and. I didn't think about that with the plays. I hope they've been postponed and not canceled. Yeah. yeah. Well, whole, I mean, my gosh, the theater, the, the performer, performing arts have been so hard hit um, by, you know, music venues and, 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 and theaters. I, I just feel so, so much for all of those people who have been impacted by that. Yeah. Um, if, oh God, I had like, like 8,000 more questions as usual. Um, Shoot, I was gonna ask for like one surprising Reese or Laura anecdote. And I want to <laughs> encourage the audience while you're thinking about that to follow Cheryl on Instagram because she leads like the writer red carpet life. Like I knew actually before I asked that question that you were still in touch with both of them and that you all have this wonderful collaboration between very powerful and affectionate women. The affection among the three of you is, is really palpable. When you first met them, I would have had the awe factor. I would have had like the, you know, the girl from Kansas going to Oz being like an Oprah's house good. Like I can't touch the hand towels in the bathroom. Like <laughs> feel that way when you were working with these three ladies. You know, I, I just, Sometimes, well, especially Oprah, who is like so, uh, I mean, obviously so famous that she's like next level. I knew, I knew how famous Oprah was when um, she came, yeah, I invited her to the wild premiere, uh, the premiere of the film at the Telluride Film Festival. And uh, she, it was so sweet. I mean, she like flew in just to like see wild, you know. And when I told Laura and Reese, you know, I invited Oprah and she was coming. Even Laura and Reese were like, oh my God, Oprah's coming. And I was like, you guys are freaking out that Oprah's coming. Like that's, you know, even she's even famous with the famous people. Like, you know, but so I will say though, I don't tend to be starstruck. I, I and I think it's the writer in me, you know, the writer in me just knows that everyone is, is human. And the only thing that fame is, is that, that, you know, that we're aware of, you know, when somebody is famous, it's just that a lot of people know who they are. It, it doesn't, it doesn't change who they are. Um, it doesn't change that they're like, like everyone else in terms of their anxieties and fears and, and victories and all that stuff. Right. And so I just always remember that. But sometimes when I'm sitting with Oprah, I'll be like, okay, like this is Oprah fucking Winfrey. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's funny things like that, you know, um, where I'll just be like, have a kind of double take moment, but and I um, hope you say that to her at those moments and be like, you know what, you are Oprah fucking Winfrey. That is amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, but Oprah. I mean, that's 
And and that's what makes Oprah, so many people love Oprah because I do think that she's always showing her vulnerability too. Like, like she isn't just a star. She isn't just a famous, powerful woman. She's a human first. And so she, yeah, she's, she's, yeah, she's real. Yeah. She leads with her vulnerabilities. She leads with her humanity. I think. Yeah. Um, I'm getting pings that I have to let you go. I know. I know. You I want to say the people, here, the can I, can I tell people about my calendar? You can do anything you want, Cheryl. It, you do, do the thing. So the, the lovely people at Workman Press got in touch with me, Workman, Workman Publishing, and they, they wanted to make a calendar of Cheryl's trade quotes. Uh, like none of them have curse words in them, which is like really, really a big accomplishment but they're 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 um so here it is it just came out a few weeks ago I haven't even like posted about it on my social media because I feel like people don't buy calendars for 2021 in, in July but soon you'll hear about this but so you guys get the first peek at my calendar it's on sale now it's called wild brave and true a year of goodness bigness and forgiveness and it every month has quotes that you can actually have on your wall without offending anyone not that anyone's coming over to your house um but you can get that wild brave and true from workman publishing that is my thing that's my new thing we are all calendar calendar for 2021 because 2020 has turned out to be the year that we would like to hurry off the stage as quickly as oh yeah we are looking for 2021 jenna email me your address and i'll mail you one okay I will. I will. Can I add the F-bomb to all of the quotes? In the- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, little carrots. In the- Indeed. I would Indeed. be honored. I would be honored. Thank you. Um, last question is, well, actually, I have two last questions for you, which is breaking every rule of interviewing. But one of the things that I, I'm going to sort of spool back to the beginning of the conversation. And, and one of the things that I loved so much about Torch and Wild and the essays and was thinking about like young Cheryl in Minnesota, like where I am now, except Northern Minnesota, and this sort of like not recognizing the water that you swam in as being like difficult, like this is a tough life, you know, like when I was wild again, it wasn't just about your mom for me, it was also about like, these are some tough conditions to grow up in. And now you're like, Laura and Reese and Oprah, you know, do you have ever a message for your younger self or do you look back at that younger person and think oh my gosh honey your life has turned out like x way let me tell you like what would you tell that young Minnesotan Cheryl well that is yeah that's the that's when when I'm gonna like cry about everything that's happened it's because I'm thinking about that because the young Cheryl just simply could not have imagined could not even have imagined uh what what the old Cheryl, the me, the now Cheryl, the middle-aged Cheryl. That's not what I meant. <laughs> would be, would be uh, what, what my life would be like. You know, I grew up in poverty. I grew up uh, really, in, like you said, in, in difficult circumstances that I, that I could, that I knew were difficult, but later I knew, like I could see myself more clearly. And that is when I get a little emotional when I think like, okay, I have traveled a really far distance and, um, so many people helped me along the way, so many privileges, uh, you know, white privilege, other privileges helped me along the way, but I also worked really, really hard. Um, And to have made that journey by, you know, propelling myself forward on the power of words, by believing in myself and saying, I'm gonna write, I'm gonna write, I'm gonna write, I don't care how many people say, you know, 
wanted to get a real job. You know, keeping faith with what I knew was the truest part of me is how I got here. Um, and that makes me, yeah, I just am full of gratitude. And, and, I, and, I, and I think it's okay that way back then, young Cheryl couldn't have seen where I was going. I mean, it was beyond, you know, this is beyond my, my capacity to imagine back then. And yet I think that that's maybe the best way to dream isn't like, where are we gonna be in 20 years or 30 years or 40, but where are we gonna be today? Where are we gonna be tomorrow? What am I gonna do today or tomorrow to make my dream come true? And I think that that's what I did for, well, that's what I'm still doing. For young Cheryl, thank you. I do, you know, I, I feel very fondly toward that very tender young girl and toward you thank and you. your journey from young Cheryl to now Cheryl has inspired literally millions of people. And we're thank grateful you. you made that journey too. So thank you for spending like 18 hours with us today and being so kind about putting up with all of my questions and answering reader questions. I know we've had many more for you, but I have to let you go do some protesting and, you know, Portland, DC. <laughs> Jenna, you're awesome. Well, I'm really, works. I'm your, I'm your fan. The next time I see you on an elevator, I'm going to be the one accosting you. Congratulations on finishing your memoir. I had so much fun chatting with you. Oh, it was a sheer, sheer delight, honor, and privilege. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you. And thank you for everyone who else who's, I don't even know, is anyone listening to this or watching this? I mm -hmm. hope there are a few people out there. I don't see you. I just see Jenna. So all of you, thank you for, for watching and listening. I, I really appreciate you being here. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Mighty Blaze. Thank you, Mighty Blaze viewers. Bye. Bye. Bye, Mighty Blaze viewers. Take care. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. Tune in next time for a very special conversation with author Pam Houston. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. 